Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Hello there. Happy Halloween. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv. And yes, I am here on a Monday instead of a Tuesday. And you know why? Because Halloween. Today, I am here with a special conversation episode dedicated to all things, well, dead. This episode is coming into your feeds today instead of Tuesday's usual episode uh, because Halloween. I I needed more spooky in my life, and so did you. But you will still have the Cupid After Show episode on Wednesday and Friday's regular episode. But today, today I called in on friend of the podcast, fan favorite, the one who knows about all the things dead, 
Dr. Ellie Mack and Roberts. In the first ever three-time repeat guest, Ellie is back on my show to talk underworld gods and so much more. I I called on this favor at the last minute when I realized that most of the sourcing I was using for this month's episodes were Ellie's own books, and I just needed to talk about the underworld more. And so, I mean, gods, who better to ask? And Ellie came through. Now, we had a truly amazing time, and sometimes what that means is the topics jump around a bit. Like, listening back, I'm realizing I kept getting excited by tiny little comments Ellie would make and then having her explain those bits and pieces and totally knock her off her original point. But you know what? It's all too interesting, and I have ADHD, so here we are. We talked about everyone's favorite psychopomp, Hermes, about the Renways, Melinoe, and Persephone herself. We talk about Hades and the cult of worship that existed around him. We talk about oracles of the dead. (sighs) Yeah, you heard me right. Just you wait. Fuck, I learned so much, and I had so much fun. (sighs) So, no more of my thrilled ramblings. Let's get right into the conversation, shall we? Halloween special, communing with the ancient dead, the underworld with Dr. Ellie Mackin Roberts. The Underworld. I'm really excited about this. And obviously I had to talk to you about it. So you did you do your whole PhD on Underworld Gods? Is like that kind of where you got into it? Or like, what's the background on why you know so much about Underworld Gods? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I did my PhD on Underworld Gods. It was um, Underworld Gods in Greek, uh, ancient Greek cult and literature. And then mm. that turned into the book in which... I took a lot of the like big literature sections out Um, but I actually got interested in it because of Hermes um, Mm. who is my favorite underworld god definitely Um, because I did my master's thesis so in Australia uh, master's is is are slightly different than they are here in the UK. Um, And I know that in America, you know, often people don't really even do a terminal master's. Um, But I did a a two-year research master's where I had to write a 50,000-word thesis. And I wrote it on uh, Aeschylus's Eumenides and the uh, sort of advancing this uh, idea that (sighs) Orestes' travels in the Eumenides are is basically like a, a coming-of-age rite of passage um, because he doesn't kind of undergo these, you know, big rites of passage uh, that require his father because his father is obviously not there. And then, uh, yeah. And in part of it, I kind of advanced this idea that Hermes is the most important character in the humanities, and it's an idea that I 100% stand by today. Um and always will. And I think it's really interesting as a concept because Hermes is not a character in the play. Uh, he doesn't appear. Um, he has no lines. Some scholars think that he might 
uh, appear on stage uh, relatively early on with Apollo in a section in which Apollo invokes him uh, and says, uh, essentially, Hermes, take Orestes to Athens. And they go, we later learn at the towards the end of the play when they're in Athens, um, we learn that they went by sea. You would normally not go from Delphi to Athens by sea. No. Uh, you would go over land. But so they go by sea. Um, and so this kind of got me on this like path of thinking about sea journeys and the role of um, guides, uh, divine guides uh, and this sort of thing and kind of came to a conclusion that this is a death and rebirth. The reason that he travels via ah. sea uh, with uh, Hermes is because he undergoes this death and rebirth rite of passage because he kind of, in that that section, he he goes from uh, polluted to unpolluted, from youth to man, from exile to king. Uh, so he's kind of go undergoing this very like rapid fire, huge levels of transformation. Um, and so that's kind of what got me interested in the underworld. Um, and then obviously the original conception of uh, the PhD thesis was completely different to how it turned out and certainly very different to how the book turned out. Um, and I was far more interested in the beginning in looking at uh, minor characters, um, the Arrhenias, uh, you know, the nameless gods. Um, I never was, like, particularly interested in the very later, you know, chthonic divinities um, like Melanoe. And as I sort of came to learn, uh, you know, and as you have kind of alluded to at various points in other episodes as well, uh, Hecate being, you know, in in my period, actually not really an underworld god at all. Um, and then obviously, you know, you have to start thinking about the way that these gods manifest both in the mythology, there's not a lot of underworld-related mythology, um, and also the way that they manifest in cult, and there's not a lot of underworld-related cult as well. Um, and I certainly don't think I necessarily do myself any favours in that respect um, by not reading uh, the Eleusinian Mysteries in particular as an eschatological cult, um, which I don't think it is. And I think I have already talked on this podcast about my feelings on that um, in another episode. So have yeah, that's sort of. <laughs> oh my God, so interesting. Maybe I didn't. I don't. So do maybe, <laughs> I? I assumed I did when I was talking about Persephone, but maybe I didn't. Have, but I don't know. But my brain is mush. I want to hear it again yeah. if I have. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, look, all religion, it, religious practice in uh, ancient Greece is about forming relationships with the gods right and I don't I know that some scholars see this as like a, uh, a one for one I'm going to give you this thing you give me this thing I'll give you this you give me this um, but I don't I don't see it that way I, I don't think that makes any sense for the way that people actually practice faith uh, it is to my mind 
um, and the evidence I think suggests this, far more about building ongoing reciprocal relationships in the same way that you like build friendships uh, or build relationships with like your teachers or, you know, even build relationships with, um, you know, other authority figures in your life um, where there is a, a two-way exchange but that doesn't have to be completely equal all the time, that there can be times when one person is giving much more than the other person, knowing that, you know, as my mother would say, everything works out in the wash. Um, and so that's kind of what I think we have to be working with at the base. Um, and so to say that the Eleusinian mysteries are like, we are going to do this thing, we're going to participate in this massive ritual process in which realistically you like normal people are only doing two festivals the first lesser mysteries and the first uh, of the Eleusinian mysteries a smaller number of people are doing three um, where they then go back uh, to the Eleusinian mysteries uh, probably several years later and uh, act as the like elder initiates um, in the role of like the the mustai. And so this is like to say we're doing this these two things and then we're going to get this amazing afterlife to me makes no sense. Um, mm -hmm. I think it makes far more sense if you read it in the context of a person building a lifelong relationship with Demeter and Persephone, particularly by, you know, also undergoing annual festivals like going to the Thesmophoria or, you know, other um, Demetrian fertility festivals. Uh, and this is just one part of that relationship building. And maybe one of the things that you get from Persephone when you build a strong, long lasting relationship with her is preferential treatment in the underworld. But actually we don't really have any evidence of people being able to like get preferential treatment in the underworld from the Eleusinian mysteries. You know, it's not like we have the evidence that we have for like the Orphic mysteries with the gold tablets where we have, you know, like the instructions and drink from, you know, don't drink from the fountain of Leith, drink from the fountain of Mnemosyne, mm -hmm. um, forgetfulness and memory. Um, you know, and those sorts of things. And we just don't kind of have that same level of information. And yeah, that could be, you know, because people don't talk about the mysteries because they're not allowed to. Mm -hmm. um, but like, they, it just, I don't know. I just don't feel like it makes sense in the broader conception of building faith relationships with the divine that you do this one thing and then you get like it's not like buying vip tickets mm -hmm. no that makes a lot of sense i i've never i like i've never had the the i guess time really to and all right chosen to devote the time to really getting into the elusive mysteries so like much of what I know is just like whatever I've kind of gleaned, you know, over time, which so often like that's the idea that's presented that like that's its explicit reason. But it does like, 
your argument makes perfect sense as well that like yeah like a one-off thing is not not really something that happened often in like that kind of world and so yeah yeah that's so interesting i I have like my own obsession with the Samothracian mystery cult. And so every time I think about any <laughs> yeah. mystery cult, I come back to that too is like, cause it's, I mean, even more mysterious, but I just think what, cause that one too is kind of like a one-off where we think it's like you yeah. got safety upon the seas. Right. And it's like, well, yeah. Was that also a practical thing? I mean, in that case, we don't even know what gods they worshiped and there's like, anyway, I, I could, I clearly I could go on with that. I was recently like talking about my trip to Samothrace was like all deep in my head. Um, it's such an incredible place. Oh my god, it's the greatest place I've ever been in my life. I don't know how yeah. to like properly express how I felt on that island. <laughs> like, yeah, no, it's like game changing. Um, but it's not about death. It's fine. Um, but well, so- you say that, but yeah. okay. Um, <laughs> don't don't get excited. This is going to okay. be such tangential. <laughs> you say it's not about death, but of course we have this idea that like people who are actively on the seas are so in danger that they are in the precipice between you know this like how many people are in the underworld and how many people how many people are dead and how many people are like well like where do you count the sailors Mm -hmm. I can't Mm -hmm. remember who that's from but it is ancient it is this like ancient idea yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, and yeah, I that's something I've thought about from past episodes recently as well of like the yeah, the the level of danger that the sea would have been back then. I mean, it's dangerous now and then thinking about it back then and the mysterious level of it, like the idea of like what is lurking beneath that they have no idea. That is fascinating in itself. Um yeah, from a the Ocean mysteries generally are are utterly fascinating and I want I would love to I mean hear more about them or and or I should say but like I'm so fascinated by the I guess lack of information about the underworld and the gods down there but like clearly they were very important I'm interested in in what the modern world has done with them too like like when it comes to Malinui people had I got multiple people suggesting I cover her on the podcast, like in an episode. And then I go looking for ancient sources and it's like one Orphic hymn. And I'm like, what, where are you all getting her name that you want me to cover this woman who is in a singular <laughs> Orphic hymn? Like, yeah, that's, that's wild probably to me. like one of the latest ones, like third yeah. century CE. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's just a couple statements about her. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, Do you know what I genuinely reckon it is? I think people like in the, you know, uh, re- Persephone and Hades retelling romance genre, um, uh, you know, of work that's kind of come up in the last, you know, couple of years. I think people really want to, and I kind of glean this idea from like, you know, things I read on like Reddit and TikTok, not read on TikTok, but you know what I mean, and see on TikTok mm-hmm. and Twitter. Um, people want to take this idea of the romance of Hades and Persephone to like a happy ever after. And if they have children, then that is a happy ever after. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think people have kind of very much like latched onto Zagreus, Dionysus Mm -hmm. Zagreus 
for similar reasons. Um, and as you kind of know from having covered the Orphic tradition, like quite recently, it's not as simple as, you know, what anything. Yeah. Like that's no. not a simple tradition in any way. <laughs> but it kind of like it, I think it's a lot more comforting to think that, you know, even underworld divinities can have a happily ever after. Mm-hmm. And maybe they do, but they certainly don't have children. And that mm-hmm. is the point. Um, and I think it probably also has to do with like Persephone being a spring goddess, spring, mm-hmm. like she's not, um, I think. Uh, you don't think she's the goddess of spring either in that way? No. Oh, I love this. No, Why? I don't. Um, <laughs> and I don't think she's a goddess of fertility either Ooh. because she like this is a very like crude metaphorical way of putting it but like she's the seed which is buried not the plant that grows mm. like the seasons happen because of Demeter Persephone has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with it. She was tangentially, well, not tangentially, she was kidnapped (laughs) and, you know, her mother as a fertility divinity is the one who brings forth growth and stunts growth. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, you know, Persephone doesn't do that. And in our very earliest sources, um, you know, she is just a goddess of the underworld. And a ruler of the underworld in a way that, like, kind of almost doesn't fit with the idea of of her origin, origin story of the relationship of Hades and Persephone. Um, that's something that I struggle with a lot uh, because in Homer, in the Odyssey in particular, she is presented as the leader of the dead or the mm-hmm. leader of the underworld she is uh like the custodian of the dead she is the one who kind of runs everything and you know in a lot of cases it's not even particularly clear grammatically or syntactically if hades is being referred to as uh, a god or just as the place Mm. um you like there are places where he is like very concretely characterized and um, very notably in the Iliad when Poseidon shakes the earth uh, and Hades fears that uh, the earth will will break away and his realm will be exposed um, and so like he is there but mm. it's almost like he's this kind of absentee lord and Persephone is the one who kind of does the work Mm -hmm. one other thing i read um in i'm gonna forget where but in my research for the the episode i released this just this week um is that also in homer persephone is not named as demeter's daughter she's like an underworld deity and yeah and that isn't explicit which that is really interesting to me and so yeah the opening that question of like was there a time when the Persephone of the underworld and Corey of Demeter's daughter were different people? And like, yeah, I mean, 
I think that I tend to like read them as the same person uh, or same divinity, partly mm. because I think archaic and classical Greeks read them as the same person. Mm. And so in some ways it's almost a moot point, right? you know, in terms of my research into religion and cult, whether they were originally separate divinities or not. Um, but then also she's called Persephone in the Homeric Hymn. And mm-hmm. so if they were originally separate, then at least by the 6th century, mm-hmm. uh, you know, perhaps uh, 7th century even, they're amalgamated enough mm-hmm. um, that, you know, the story makes sense to be Persephone rather than to be Kore. Right. But then, you know, we also get into like the weirdness with the Eleusinian mysteries where we have Kore and Pluton and this other couple, Thea and Theos, the god and the goddess, or Theos and Thea, the god and the goddess, who are Hades and Persephone. And they appear together in iconographic representations Mm -hmm. of Eleusis we get both couples at the same time. And so that's also really interesting Mm. about whether there's, you know, a delineation of roles and responsibilities that the mystery, fertility, wealth gods, not fertility, but wealth, wealth and wealth creation kind of gods. and the gods of the dead, the underworld, um, become separated out in some way. Um, But again, you know, like we don't know enough about the mysteries themselves, Mm -hmm. any of them, but in this case, the Eleusinian mysteries. We just don't know enough about like what happened to really understand that, whether that is a deliberate delineation between those two aspects. or indeed, if we have read the whole thing incorrectly and Thea and Theos are not Hades and Persephone. Hmm. And they're like so, other gods. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I had no idea any of that. Uh, and and so I don't even know. Now I'm just taking it all in, not even forming a question out of it. But that is fascinating. So they're just like two, two couples that we think in theory are both Hades and Persephone, but also they are two different Hades and yeah. Persephone. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, does it have anything to do with like, uh, I mean, I'm thinking this through as I say it, but like the um, before abduction to post abduction, like I know they wouldn't have been a couple pre abduction, obviously, but like, I'm just thinking of like a above ground versus underworld or something like, well, I I have wondered, not necessarily that it's like a pre and post, but whether it actually is representative of that change of season mm. where, you know, the underworld couple come up and transform into, you know, the above ground couple. Um, because Pluton still uh, is a very underworld aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, aspected divinity like 
you know, his wealth, his Hades as wealth because of the wealth that is kept in the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't have the answers. No, I, wish I, I wish I had the answers. <laughs> I mean, story of like everything I ever think about when yeah. it comes to the like, ancient world. <laughs> indeed. And My that's what we do, isn't machine. it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's the wondering and the like theorizing and it's why like conversations have become one of my favorite things to do because even just talking it out loud to somebody else like so often you can like not necessarily come up with like new thoughts but it's more like just understand things in a totally different way let alone like the amount that I learned from talking to people but also just like yeah my my the favorite thing of mine that came out of something like that that was so explicit in my head was like not ever really thinking about why um like the children of Helios are all like Eastern gods, like in Colchis, and then being like just chatting with someone one day and being like, "Wait, it's just it's because the sun is." Yeah. <laughs> and I just like lost it. I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I love that so much. But it's especially with my role in this is like I am so in the stories that often it does take like talking to somebody else to like pull out the reality side of it because in my I also you know like have an English degree alongside my classics degree and so I always kind of come at it more of like as a text that I'm reading versus thinking about it in the real world which is something I try to do it because it makes it so much more interesting but yeah like I think that's that's like a such a result of it is like it's why I also now bring up like absolutely constantly to my listeners like the consideration of like what why we have the stories that we do why pieces are missing like why there are so many question marks and it's like why we can't understand all of it. And that makes it better, I think, but also infuriating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very much so. Okay. I'm just like thinking about like, so uh, a question that I always ask my first years um, is uh, some variation of like, what is the only corpus uh, of texts that we have from the ancient world? The yeah. answer is epigraphy, okay. like the inscriptions. Right. That's the only thing that we have that's genuine ancient words right because right? everything yeah. else is mediated through right. like you know medieval and later scribes and the process of choice and all these sorts of things yeah um, and it's one of the things that I think is really uh, both super fascinating and very bothersome about studying the underworld or having studied the underworld because like this constant question of how much more stuff actually was there that somebody decided not to save mm. because it was heretical or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and how much would I like to go back and just be in those like rooms of scribes and just be like, no. <laughs> keep this one, please. Why are you keeping all this Menander? Nobody wants to read that. <laughs> I've never read a single word of Menander. <laughs> oh, I must have told you this before, but I had to translate the Perichromony in my final year for Greek and it ruined me. I, now I think about it too. I think you're the only one who's ever even brought up Menander on my show. <laughs> probably for that was telling me that uh but I do think it says a lot about him like I feel like the only thing I know is just based on the fact that 
there's that statue of him in on the Acropolis. And like, otherwise I've got nothing. <laughs> just yeah. like, cool. Okay. He's the guy from the Acropolis. Yeah. Um, well, in the underworld, I've never thought about it in that way too. Like I think constantly about the decisions that were made that led to what we have now and what we are missing. And, and, you know, because of how I go about things half the time I'm thinking about like, okay, what stories do we have or do we not have because a woman wrote them or because they featured women in a different way that somebody didn't like or all these different things, right. Revolving around women. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, add to that the idea of it, it must be such a specific question mark of the underworld because of Christianity in a way that I'd never thought of. Like I just generally the paganism alone, I think is why we don't have a lot because Christianity came about doing that, but specifically, yeah, the underworld would have such deeper implications there yeah the evidence that we have is not significant um in any way uh like there's some evidence of cult activity like it's not it's i think very disingenuous to say that hades has no cult mm. um but there's certainly not a lot and it is deeply bizarre uh, the bits that there are um well no some bits are deeply bizarre some bits are very normal like you know a statue of pluton in another god's temple it which you know pausanias tells us quite a bit mm -hmm. about um, i was just reading up on that because i'd never i mean i've been now like really keen on pausanias because it's fascinating but specifically reading up on some of the the Hades stuff was quite interesting for that yeah. just like little statues of him kind of everywhere yeah and just in like and you know that's a, like a, quite normal Pausanias talks about this sort of everywhere like of having statues of all different types of gods in mm -hmm. all different other types of temples um and there are certainly fewer of of Pluton and he he normally calls Hades Pluton by mm. the time he's writing in the second century um you know like the the two have completely amalgamated um into one another and that's something which is already like very uh, clearly happening early on um you know even in the archaic period as well um and into the classical period uh but then there are other bits that he kind of talks about um, that we have other kind of corroborating evidence for um, that are just deeply weird, like uh, the cult of Demeter Chthonia at Hermione mm. in the Argolid. Um, and this is a super fascinating and very, very weird sort of cult in which uh, on the this is all from Pausanias um, and other kind of bits of later sources. Um, in the sanctuary grounds of Demeter Chthonia um, is uh, these kind of three, what Pausanias calls places. Um, one of, uh, I'm gonna forget what they're of now, Anyway, one of them is of Climenos, um, and this is kind of seen as a euphemism, uh, a euphemistic name for Hades. Hmm. And Climenos is uh, Demeter Chthonia's brother and her, her daughter's husband. So, I mean, it fits. Yeah. Um, but in the the festival of Demeter Chthonia 
um, is this like weird, weird sacrifice. They have this huge procession in which young children are involved wearing like specific um, flower crowns uh, that are inscribed with letters um, and uh, letters like uh, of mourning, like of, of uh, lament, wailing. Mm. Um, and then the sacrifice is takes place inside a, t- a closed temple, which is already really weird. Like sacrifice mm-hmm. always takes place outside. Mm-hmm. They sacrifice cows, cows or bulls. Inside a temple. Inside the temple, wow. four of them. Wow. And there are four elderly women who are inside the temple with sickles, huh. not like knives or anything with sickles specifically and the first uh, cow is like pushed into the temple essentially and they slaughter the cow and then however that is done so how Pausanias talks about whichever side that cow goes to so uh, kind of read it like if the cow is killed from like the left and falls that way left that all the other cows have to be killed in the same way. Mm. And then they bring the, the bodies out um, to butcher, etc. But, yeah, it's just this kind of really weird. First, women don't are not often sacrificers. Mm-hmm. Elderly women, even less. Mm-hmm. And to have such a bizarre uh, sacrificial implement like a sickle, and the vocabulary that Pausanias uses to describe this is also really interesting. It's very, very violent. Um, he talks about it, it using vocabulary that he only uses uh, a couple of other times in the entirety of his work and only for murders. Hmm. So he, you know, it's this very, very violent, subversive sacrifice for an underworld god mm-hmm. um, or here an underworld goddess actually mm-hmm. who is not one of our regular you know mm-hmm. underworld divinities that we might think of uh, mm-hmm. Hades Persephone you know um, but Demeter in this very kind of earthy earthbound you know chthonic in the actual sense of in the ground Mm -hmm. Um, and you know I I really like the link uh, the conceptual link between that and that little section uh, in line in the Homeric hymn where they talk about burying seeds um, and you know uh, with the kind of imagery of burying bodies Mm. um, that you know it's almost as if they need to die and be buried in order to to be reborn Mm -hmm. as new plants (laughs) that is that's so cool so i mean i'm just trying to think of like the practicalities too like that alone is interesting like the like sacrificing indoors um because in the dark in the dark yeah would uh like very likely be dark yeah Oh, it's so creepy. I love it. Um, and then the sickle too, like, is that like, 
mean, it sounds like it's connecting with Demeter because it would be like a harvest kind of situation. But I was wondering too, like whether it can connect back to Kronos in some way. It feels like violent, like his sickle experience. Yeah, I'd never thought about that, to be honest. But that's, I mean, like a decent enough connection to make. I mean, I think the thing about sickles is that, you know, they're, they're common not household, but, you know, property kind of things that you have. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, yeah, things that you have around the farm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, they're practical. Yeah. And I guess that also sort of raises questions about, like, the role of objects in religious practice. Um, You know, I think that, because of the way that modern religions and even modern paganism religion pagan religions treat ritual objects sometimes i think we kind of forget that like objects don't have to be objects can be made sacred temporarily Mm. quite easily you know most religions have a way to do this and the Greeks certainly like had a sense of making something sacred of of purifying it um through like sacred water or whatever um and you know sacred water uh for archaic and classical Greeks was not anything special mm-hmm. it was water from a running source hmm. so you know, like it wasn't something that kind of, you know, got blessed by the moon and <laughs> we had to like dance around three times chanting and it wasn't something which, you know, had to be put into like a special container and blessed by a priest. Um, you know, it wasn't any, it just had to be from a running source. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a lot of ways that comes back to the idea that Greek religion is like a nature religion but taken to the extreme Mm. um but so you know it makes sense that like you have objects around that can kill cows Mm -hmm. so use them (laughs) yeah like it it works yeah yeah and I kind of like obviously there's no evidence for this but when we find you know instances of those sorts of things I do wonder and particularly in this case whether it's not just that at some point someone made the connection Demeter is a goddess of fertility we have the sharp tool that you know we use in the harvest which is under her domain it makes sense for us to use this and you know, it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Like mm-hmm. we've got this thing, it'll do the job. It's already associated with the divinity that we're talking about. Let's just use it. Mm-hmm. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. That's so interesting, generally. But it led me to remember this other passage I read in the... It was on Theoi.com section on the Hades cult. Um, and I'm going to forget whether it was yes. Pausanias or it might have been a moment where it was... I know there was a Strabo one that I found as well. But regardless, it was a, it was one of the two. Um, and it was a, talking about a temple to Hades in Ellis. <gasps> the cult at Ellis. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So I desperately want to hear more about that because I read that and was like, holy shit, like this is a wild little passage to be reading. Well, I mean, like I can't really tell you more than is in the passage. Um, Fair. <laughs> it's a temple which uh, is opened once a year um, and only the priest is allowed to enter because going in uh, to the Temple of Hades is going in to Hades itself and you cannot like continually die. Um, mm -hmm. The thing that I find the most interesting about that passage, it is in Pausanias and it's oh the God. only time that Pausanias calls Hades, Hades and not Pluton. And mm. I think that's really interesting uh, because I think perhaps it indicates that this is a very old cult that it is very stable in its practice and which kind of makes sense right when you only have one person really who is doing the majority of the participation and handing that on to the next person there's not, even over large amounts of time, there's not really a lot of space for innovation. Mm -hmm. 
And even where there is innovation, it's not necessarily something which is considered change because you're talking about one person kind of handing on to the next person, to the next person, to the next person. Um, and I, I, I don't think that Pausanias says this, but in my mind, it's a hereditary cult. Um, mm. I think that that like maybe is like my own headcanon for it, but it makes sense to me. Um, but yeah, I think it, it kind of shows that this is, like a very old sacred practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, there is uh, the link, too, with the Necumantian at Ellis. Um, on the river Acheron, obvious links to the Acheron of the underworld. Mm-hmm. I didn't um, know there was a real Acheron. <laughs> there is. It is oh, in hey. Ellis. Oh, my God. Um, and in a, a, a little town called... The Sprontia, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a temple complex there or, or a building complex there that kind of seems to indicate um, a, a movement around uh, in which, you know, it has been theorised. Um, and I have a, a couple of times given um papers about this using a guided meditation at the start and actually it's the uh the the passage that I use for this is the passage that's right at the front of my underworld god's book Mm. about the necumantic experience um you go in you are given like into a very low light situation perhaps even dark uh for several days the only other person that you come in contact with is the priest who brings you food and drink. Um, you can hear from the from inside the, the building complex, you can hear the water, the running water. Um, you're given uh, foods that have mild toxicity, perhaps uh, that might uh, facilitate hallucination. Um, at some point, the priest decides that you're ready to go on to the next step brings you inside a, a tiny uh, a lamb. I was about to say a tiny sheep. And I remember <laughs> there's a real word for that, <laughs> lamb. Um, you take the lamb in, you dig uh, a pit, you sacrifice the lamb, drain the blood into the pit, um, which I, I hope is kind of recalling. Uh, Did you see my face? <laughs> uh, Edithian sort of... Uh, sacrificial yes and blood pit dead. immediately I was like Odysseus does this yeah um and uh, various sort of other things perhaps honey um and then you burn incense or something else um it seems unlikely that you would butcher and burn the lamb but there is an idea of something that creates smoke Mm. Um, which obviously when you're in an enclosed space is very overwhelming. Um, At some point around this time, uh, you are either given or you pick up some stones of some kind. Um, As you keep walking around, there's a point in which you have to kind of throw the stones uh, as you, uh, I assume, obviously we've got no evidence for this, um, but like pray and and do various kind of other things. 
and then you get into uh, the, the main chamber of the building complex um, in which you uh, present your your question to the to the dead, um, whoever it is that you have have tried to call up. Um, now, this is all uh, obviously like a reconstruction based on like the archaeological evidence of things being found in places and like burning um, on the uh, buildings and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. But what's really interesting about this is there's uh, the same kind of um, uh, pulley, like large crane pulley structure um, mm. behind the almost a false wall uh, as you would have behind the stage mm. at the theatre. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, one suggestion has been that perhaps the priest like facilitates your uh, oracular experience with the dead by like sending ghosts, wooden ghosts uh, hmm. down for you to talk to. Holy shit. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just that's a, an enormous holy shit moment for me. So was this like, like, uh, for one, I feel like this is a thing that uh, is not well enough known. And I think that everyone should be talking about this all the time. Um, <laughs> but also, like, do we know anything about who went to do this and why? Or no, just nothing. No. Like, I mean, we can make some guesses about yeah. who went and why. Um you know, why do you go and, and why do you go to any oracle, you know, because mm -hmm. you want answers to something. But why specifically might you go to an oracle in which you are talking to the dead, not mm -hmm. underworld gods, not divinities, mm -hmm. but specifically to the dead? You know, you might uh, go because um, you deeply, deeply miss somebody and you want mm -hmm. to speak with them. You might go because um you know someone has left their entire fortune in a locked box and you can't find the key <laughs> yeah and everything sort of in between yeah um you know and in the same way that like i think probably grief plays a massive role in this kind of uh cult in the same way that like clairvoyance um, and mediums, those sorts of things, you know, have huge business mm -hmm. from people experiencing grief. I kind of don't really want to, like, necessarily, um, like, diminish it down to that because I think mm -hmm. that for a lot of those people, even though, like, it's probably not a real thing, that probably still plays a massive role in, you know, their grieving process. Mm -hmm. um and I think probably it was you know a very similar thing was happening here mm -hmm. uh, but also you have to be able to afford it you have to be able to afford right. to travel to a place which is like not easily accessible and take several days off from your life and an unspecified amount of time off yeah. right um and to pay the priest uh and for everything that you're kind of doing so yeah you know I tend to kind of think it's probably 
like majority relatively wealthy people who are undergoing grief yeah yeah and fascinating honestly like I don't know I just I mean I could I would like to learn more um no I just am thinking about like every time I learn something new and my brain goes and explodes as if it's something that hasn't happened before <laughs> and it, it's like every week that I talk to people but like I don't know that that's so fascinating to me was there more than one of these that we know of or just this one so there were more than one there are at least four. Oh wow um the one uh, in Ellis uh, is the one that we know the most about Mm-hmm. Um, there was one in Asia Minor somewhere. Okay. Uh, maybe I I want to say somewhere on like the m- coast of what is now Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, and one I think in northern Greece, maybe even into Macedonia. Mm. Um, I should know where they are and I that's just not like readily available in my brain that's fair that's fair I almost uh did some diving into these for an episode and then ended up with too much and that was a great I now I have content for next year but of course I should have known it would come up here too but that did lead me also to something I wanted to clarify from earlier so what what was the kind of practical or like what were the differences between using Hades's name of Hades versus Pluton? Like, I know it's like the wealth aspect, but was there more to it than than that? Like, in terms of what name you're choosing to use? Um, I don't know. I really struggle with this. I know a lot of people say that, like, the Greeks were afraid to use the name Hades. Mm. I don't think that's the case. There is so many instances of Hades being called Hades that it just is not feasible um Mm -hmm. and I think that that actually comes from uh the oh my god what's it called Plato's Cretalus anyway it's this like quite it's not a very well read um dialogue of Plato's and it's not well read because it's about etymology Uh, Mm. and so it's very difficult to kind of have a good translation of it and so you kind of have to like know the Greek or be willing to kind of do the work of Mm -hmm. figuring out Um, and in one part he talks about uh, particularly Persephone and the reason that she's called uh, Ferrifata or Persephata, um, which is a a cultic name that we find for her, particularly in Attica. Um, And it's because people are afraid to invoke her name and just like with Hades. Um, But, like, it's not... (laughs) To begin with, we can't use Plato for, like, evidence of what real normal people actually thought um, or the way that they understood the divine or the way that they practiced religion. Um, And particularly, I think, not with this dialogue because it is this, like, very forced etymological conversation. Mm. Um, 
I think it's very common for gods to be given a lot of different names. Um, you know, whether that's uh, epithets um, that go with their name uh, or whether it is like alternative names, like with Persephone and Kare. Um, and we don't kind of tend to have this conversation about like, why do the Greeks call Zeus, Zeus, but also Dios? Mm -hmm. You know, why do the Greeks call Persephone, Persephone, but also Kare? Um, I mean, I have thoughts on that. Do I? Yeah. Mm, don't know. Um, I think it just is like, you know, maybe there's something to say about there being an original uh, differentiation between um, Pluton and Plutos, uh, who's a different god again, um, mm. and Hades, and that they kind of become connected. Um, in terms of like Pausanias, you know, I think it's just because by that stage, yeah. like that's kind of a more Roman name, mm -hmm. um, even though, you know, it is a Greek name. But yeah. So I, that doesn't really answer your question in anything more than like a very like roundabout sort of like I think there's a lot I think there's a lot less to say about it than perhaps some people would like to say. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, it's always kind of stood out to me that like as much as all the gods have multiple names and like I mean, it seems to me that Hades and Persephone, like both of them, have more names than the other gods. Because when it comes to the other gods, it tends to be more epithets yeah. than names. Like, yeah, bazillion different epithets when it comes to them. But in terms of like actual different names they're called, it seems to me that those two have more, which, I mean, like also kind of just makes sense if you're talking about underworld gods in my head at least just in terms of yeah they're because they're gonna have more sides they're gonna be more like multifaceted than the other gods because they're dealing in death yeah i can't i don't know i kind of almost think it's like the opposite that they're mm. less multifaceted and then and so because they have fewer aspects they do not need enough, uh, as much differentiation and therefore it doesn't have to be name plus epithet hmm. because it's difficult to remember that this epithet goes with this god when this god has a bazillion epithets and they might be different all over the place. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about a god that has an underworld aspect and uh, a mortal world aspect, um, or a death aspect and a ground aspect in the case of, of Hades, mm -hmm. uh, uh, like an underground and an in the ground, I think is what I mean. Mm. Um, that's much easier to remember than, you know, to remember that it's just two aspects of, of one divinity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's not a like very well conceived thought. It's just, mm -hmm. That's I mean, how I've sort of always seen it. Yeah, that's all interesting. It doesn't all have to be perfect thoughts. They're all fascinating because, like, an ancient world is so fascinating. Um, so, I'm trying to decide where I want to lead this. Um, oh, maybe just some other 
underworld gods because I think probably people would be screaming for that. I mean, I know we talked briefly about Malinui, who's like fascinating in how she's not all that interesting, at least to me. Seems yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> um, but like, but there are so many others. Like, for one, I get uh, Hecate perhaps is not an underworld god, but is certainly still someone to talk that's interesting to talk about. But then, um, I'm also just thinking of like the people who are down there or like the concepts that are in the underworld. So like, do you have thoughts on the physicality of the underworld? Like people have asked me before, like, how do I picture it? How does it, and I, I don't, my brain doesn't picture things. Like I don't, I don't imagine what things looked like. I just have the thoughts or I don't even know, but, but yeah. Do you have any thoughts on the physicality? Um, Yes, but also no, because uh, mm. uh, similarly, I I don't I don't think in pictures. I have aphantasia, so I've got like black yeah. behind I, these eyes. I uh, I don't picture the underworld, um, really at all. Yeah, other gods that other underworld gods that are interesting, um, the Arinias are incredibly interesting. Uh, these uh, divinities of vengeance, um, who kind of uh three but also innumerable who originally are avengers of often kin-based violence familial violence mm-hmm. um they are goddesses who are also intricately connected with oaths mythologically they uh, attend the birth of Horcus oath um hmm. the the personification of oath um and you know that really kind of makes sense because the greek conceptualizations of oaths are like curses mm-hmm. you know it's a it's a potential self curse if i break this oath then i will be cursed mm-hmm. by this um and the Arrhenias are several times called curses. You are curses beneath the ground, Clytemnestra mm. calls them in the um, the humanities uh, of Aeschylus. Um, that's a really interesting uh, picture of them. It's the only time that uh, divinities like that are pictured on the stage in any of mm-hmm. our extant um, tragedies. Of course, that doesn't mean that they weren't mm-hmm. in other <sighs> places. The unknown. But Menander, man, why did they have to keep so much Menander? Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, in that, like, she's uh, dead. She's a ghost. Mm-hmm. And she controls them. She, like, rules over them. Um, and Aeschylus. Oh. So, sorry, who's she in this case? What am Clytemnestra. I? Fuck. The ghost I of that Clytemnestra. that way too long. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Oh my God. She like, hey. and, and kind of like admonishes them for sleeping. And that's why Orestes can escape because oh my God. they, they sleep. And, you know, they're described as like these um, oozing black, horrific sorts of creatures. Um, and then are, are turned into the kindly ones um, mm-hmm. at the end of that play. And 
the imagery of of the way that they are integrated into Athens uh, is very interesting in terms of metics um, and the metic participation, the participation of metic girl, of resident foreigner girls in the Panathenaic procession. Um, but anyway, but uh, Athena in that place says that they're going to be honoured um, by the Athenians, and we have all these little altars uh, to nameless gods. Uh, on the side of the uh, Acropolis and various other places around Athens that have been kind of identified as altars uh, to the, the Semnithei, the kindly ones, um, who, again, euphemistic name, like we're not calling them Semnithei, mm -hmm. uh, it means venerable goddesses, Eumenides means kindly ones, mm -hmm. um, you know, when, again, not calling them like the Arrhenias, the Furies mm -hmm. by their name. But they're still very interesting. I really like them. They're, I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I was going to ask about the, your thoughts on the the kindly ones' names too. Like, do we think that that was like a, a regular practice, like a thing to call them that instead of using the name of the Renways? Or like, or is it more so in this play than it is like a practical? Well, in cult, it seems that they are far more often uh, called nameless rather mm. than being like euphemistically named. Mm -hmm. um, but they certainly are named um, the Semnithei in other places. They're not ever called the Eumenides in the Eumenides. Um, they're mm -hmm. called uh, the venerable, uh, venerable goddesses. Mm. Um, and that kind of like... I think that that makes much more sense, the Semnifei, uh, because you can be venerable and still terrible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that I, is not euphemistic in the same way as being like, you're not terrible, you're really great, you're so much fun and awesome. Um, yeah, it's kind of still acknowledging the power that they have. Mm -hmm. uh, that reminds me of another pausanias thing that i found um which is that there was like a temple or something to them in athens he mentions oh yeah he does doesn't he yeah and he says that there was like statues of of hades gaia and hermes yeah inside. yeah i just generally found that fascinating <laughs> yeah. Know yeah do we think that that was like an, I mean I guess if he saw it I mean if he well yes but it's not something that we have modern corroborating evidence mm -hmm. for so I mean mm -hmm. it's a, it makes a lot of sense to kind of have particularly kind of if we go back to this idea that if you have a temple to Hades then you can't go into it mm -hmm. um you know, that really stops people from, you know, being able to participate uh, mm -hmm. in cults when they are not allowed to participate in the cult. Um, and so having uh, worship to other divinities, um, having worship to Hades within the realm of other divinities and underworld divinities, um, it does make sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, he also like places it right by the Areopagus too. So it, 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 it all checks out in such a fascinating way of thinking about their connection to, to the Areopagus and to people like accused of murder and things yeah. like that. 
and then also yeah like having having a, a, a temple or a sanctuary there to them and then being able to put a statue of Hades in there which means other people can go in and the inclusion of of Hermes and Gaia too was so interesting and like feels it's just so I mean that makes sense though doesn't it because Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. in a very fundamental way Hades is a god of the earth Mm -hmm, Um, and Hermes as I have already mentioned Mm -hmm, is the cycle pump yes well we have Hermes has several um underworld related geysers not just as psychopomp guide of mm. souls but also as hermes chthonios um Ooh. so yeah let's talk more about hermes what what other like hermes is amazing hermes i know is that's so why amazing. i want you talking more about him. Um, <laughs> i mean the most obvious uh underworld aspect of hermes is that he is the psychopomp uh the mm. guide of souls um the first literary uh, example that we have of this is the false Nekia from book 24 of the Odyssey. Um, it's very likely a later interpolation, but even so uh, is, you know, probably at least late 7th, early 6th century, mm-hmm. um, in which he kind of, in this very like Pied Piper-esque way, leads uh, the souls of the dead as they are kind of like whimpering into the underworld um, by the white rocks and kind of takes them in that way. Um, Which, uh, so one of the reasons that it's considered to be a later interpolation is because it doesn't really fit our understanding of how souls go to the underworld um in the rest of homer which is like in the iliad like there's obviously lots of things to say about the fact that very unlikely that the iliad and the odyssey were written composed by the same person etc but nevertheless that you know in the iliad when people die their suke their soul flees their body like comes out their mouth uh or Mm. their nose or their wound um and, and leaves their body and that's the moment that they die uh, and then goes into the underworld. Um, but here Hermes is kind of collecting souls together um, and taking them them away. Um, iconographically we see uh, various instances of Hermes um, either taking souls to Charon, to his boat, um, or just generally kind of leading them. Uh, it seems really like, you know, like that uh, Hades, uh, not Hades, Hermes and Charon kind of work together as like a psychopompic team um, mm-hmm. in the uh, in vase paintings. Mm-hmm. And particularly we find those on uh, like the white ground Lekathoi. Um, so there's like elongated oil jars. Mm-hmm. Um, which are often used as funerary offerings or even as kind of grave semi, as, as mm. grave markets um, and are uh, often used for uh, oil offerings to the dead. And actually we found examples. This is kind of a slight non sequitur, but I think is very cool. Um, we found examples of these where like they've been sort of stopped up. So the the long kind of almost cylindrical with this, uh, vase um, with a, another sort of very long neck, thin long neck, 
uh, and so evidence of like the bottom of the neck being stopped up with wax mm. and then oil being poured on the top of the wax uh, and then being stopped up again so there's only a little bit of wax uh, of oil in the top but if you took the lid off you'd look in and it would look like it was full right ah. so maybe you know ideas of like if you spend all of the money that you have uh on the the lekathos and you can't afford to fill it with oil then maybe you like you know just put a little bit at the top um but yeah a lot of these have images of hermes uh, as psychopompos mm-hmm. um but then we also have you know hermes is the sole messenger to Hades. Um, He is the only divinity uh, apart from Hades uh, who can independently travel into and out of the underworld. And that includes Persephone. She Mm. does not travel into and and out of the underworld on her own. Mm. Um, And so that's a very special thing. Uh, and this is all kind of related to, you know, Hermes's ability um, as a boundary leader, a boundary crosser, a boundary leader. You know, he is the boundary stone, the Herm. Um, he is a, a god who lives in the margins, um, and that includes in the margins between life and death um, mm. as well. Uh, he, of course, retrieves Persephone from the underworld in the Homeric hymn um, and uh, then when she goes back uh, and forth it's always with uh, Hecate um, she doesn't kind of go on her own mm-hmm. uh, yeah Hermes is really fascinating um, this is why just to kind of come out of the ancient world a little bit uh, this is why I think the choice of Hades, of Hermes as the narrator in Hades Town mm. was so brilliant mm. uh, because he just lives in this kind of liminal space. Um, and, right. of course, the whole of Hades Town is set in the kind of liminal space just before you move to the underworld. Huh. So one thing that I know my listeners are going to be yelling primarily because of uh, their pretty broad love for Laura Olympus is Thanatos. And I also know that, yes, and I read a section of your book on Thanatos and was like, this is fascinating, but I was talking too much about goddesses that I couldn't get into him. So this is perfect. So t- like, yeah, say anything. Cause I know that there's so much going on there in terms of him. Thanatos slash not him is- at all. Maybe. So interesting. Mm-hmm. So Thanatos is death. His name mm-hmm. comes from the word I am dying um, or I die. Uh, you know, so he is like an embodiment of death, but he doesn't kill people. Uh, he just kind of, well, he does sort of kill people. That was disingenuous. <laughs> um, but not maliciously. He's not like a violent death. Mm-hmm. He's not, you know, he's just yeah the concept of dying yeah yeah um so so one of the very first times that we we meet him is in the iliad where Mm -hmm. he and brother hypnos sleep uh pick up the body of zeus's son sarpedon um from uh the the 
I was about to say the floor, the floor of the battle, the, 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 the battle battlefield, field. Um, and take him home to uh, Lycia, right? Lycia, that's right, um, to be buried properly. Uh, so they don't take him into the underworld. I think a lot of people do have this idea that they, they take him into the underworld. They don't. They take him home to be, they mm-hmm. take his body home to be buried properly. Um, this becomes really like ref- well represented in art I can um, picture it. and you know <laughs> yeah some very very famous examples of this mm-hmm. including the eponymous uh, Sarpedon vase um, but this iconography of uh, Thanatos and Hypnos taking body a body away becomes much much more ubiquitous first we find other uh, real, presumably, um, soldiers who perhaps have been killed in battle being represented uh, maybe by their families on these white ground lekathoi. Um, and then even when we get like into the you know later classical period, we even find women being represented as mm. being taken away by Thanatos and Hypnos, um, which I think is really lovely that it becomes this like, emblematic of this gentle uh movement of the body um and therefore of the soul like from one plane into the other mm-hmm. um i think the other really so he in he said he is uh the uh the child of nix um via parthenogenesis so he has no father uh and has, you know, that whole litany of, of siblings of similar, you know, heiress and all the others. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next really big literary uh, appearance is in uh, the Alcestis, mm-hmm. which we have already spoken mm-hmm. about at length. <laughs> and specifically that scene. Yes. Oh, my God. Hermes or uh, Heracles wrestling death. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, you know, that's also really interesting. Um, iconographically, he is uh, usually a, a soldier um, in like a full panoply. Um, so that's, you know, a helmet, uh, armor, greaves, shield, spear, sword. Um, he has winged sandals. Uh, later, he is depicted as winged um, rather mm. than just having winged sandals. Um, and then, you know, various kind of ages, uh, but often in that sort of youthful maturity. Does that make mm. sense? Like mm-hmm. that moment where, like, men become, are no longer boys, but they're not kind of your elder statesman, mm-hmm. kind of vigorous youthfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I love that he's depicted with with his brother sleep too, like or and just that the idea that they are siblings in that way is such a lovely connection where you can kind of see the imagining of death being just like a long sleep. Like they're really connecting those two concepts in a in a really lovely way. Yeah. One of my favorite things I think to remind people who especially especially just people that are coming to Greek mythology from pop culture. It is just the way that like Christianity has influenced 
how we think about these things and the underworld and Hades and all of it because we have these ideas of like death being something to be afraid of yeah. uh the underworld being like hell Hades being bad like he's still always has to be the villain in in so many different things when if when we're actually looking at the traditions and the mythology and the cult everything about ancient Greece suggests they weren't afraid of him yeah he was just there because someone had to do it yeah. <laughs> and I, that i yeah. find so fascinating and that he was you know he's not this grim reaper-esque kind of figure mm-hmm. right he is represented as a normal heroic uh virtuous figure mm-hmm. in the kind of you know trappings of heroic virtuous figures Mm -hmm. um otherwise we wouldn't find him in the panoply like we wouldn't find him in the guise as a soldier um Mm -hmm. because it it, that's not about the the inherent violence of soldiering right it's about the valor it's about Mm -hmm. the heroicism um but it also is about the heroic nature with which people die normal Mm. people die in their normal circumstances and then are able to claim a level uh, of um, interaction with this uh, sympathetic empathetic heroic figure Mm -hmm. which is okay so the other uh, divinity of of battlefield death um, is Kerr and she is the absolute opposite of Thanatos. She mm. is um, so often she is called uh, the doom of death, and mm. she's sort of this like doom esque figure. And uh, both um, Homer and Hesiod uh, refer to her in the Shield of Achilles and the Shield of Heracles, respectively, and talk about her. Uh, physically being frightening and monstrous, um, that her jaw gapes open to devour, um, that Mm. she wears this cloak that's stained red with blood um, and that she kind of skulks around the, the sides of the battlefield and indiscriminately snatches men's lives away. So you don't have to be in like, the the you know death has not already happened to you mm-hmm. as when thanatos comes to you she inflicts death upon you um mm. in in very violent uh and brutal ways and kind of mm-hmm. is this sort of embodiment of that brutality of the reality of war um mm-hmm. which i think is a, a really interesting juxtaposition between thanatos as the glorious soldier and mm-hmm. she is uh, Kerr is uh, you know an embodiment of the reality uh, of the brutality of war mm-hmm. makes me think of Eris too like less connected with death but still just this woman who is there for the violence of war yeah that's yeah oh I love that that's also fascinating and i'm noticing that uh <laughs> it's been over an hour and a half of us talking about this yeah which is i mean i've got no complaints but um i will have us wrap up but this oh my god 
I could talk to you forever. Uh, so thank you for coming on <laughs> again, Ellie. You're so welcome. welcome. I love coming on. I'm so glad. I love that. Uh, for the listeners, this was like a really last minute idea I had where I was like, I just want to talk about the underworld, but uh, can you just come on sometime before Halloween? <laughs> and you made it work. <laughs> so thank you. Um, do you want to tell my listeners uh, where they can find you? And I'm thinking of your lovely TikToks, which I also referenced in an episode this month and all the other oh. things you want to share. Well, <laughs> yes, you can find me on TikTok at Ellie Mac and Roberts. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ellie M Roberts. Um, my Underworld Gods book is has recently been released in paperback. Uh, mm. So you can now get that for not a horrifically expensive 120 can, pounds or whatever it was you can also get it uh in ebook because i bought it on my ipad and it was also considerably more affordable on that route so i will well, also go for that one. and it was faster because i needed it quickly <laughs> so. uh and yeah that's that's it wonderful well um i was thrilled to have your tiktok on this recent episode i did on percep on like the chthonic goddesses um because i made your point on uh when persephone is and is not in the underworld oh as always thank you all so much for listening Man, I love these conversations. I really love talking with Ellie. This episode was so much fun. So full of so many underworld ideas and concepts and characters. And so happy Halloween. Enjoy this final spooky season. And I will see you Wednesday for another bonus Cupid after show. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek myth and the ancient Mediterranean broadly by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click on the link in this episode's description. I am Liv, and I love this shit very much. Like, oracles of the dead? Are you serious? This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. 
Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.